Well, I don't know about you, but I have been waiting since Friday morning to sing those truths. Can you just grow in anticipation for that? Those are great things to declare and really the core of our faith. If Christ is not risen, then our hope is in vain. But since he has risen, we have hope. And he is the first fruits. We too will rise because he has risen. It's a great thing to celebrate this morning. And, and we celebrate this every Sunday, but particularly this morning on Easter morning. I want to add my good morning to you. Uh, my name is Josiah Boyd. For those of you who may be visiting us for the first time, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And it, staff, and it is a, it's a joy to see you uh, with us. It's a joy to see this room so full on such a glorious morning. And uh, we're going to go to the Word together this morning and, and hear, like John asked, hear from the Lord uh, through me as his conduit. Let's pray together before we do that, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to say, my Redeemer lives. We thank you that we are able to declare these truths together as your people. These truths that we root our hope in, our hope in eternity. Yes, we, this weekend we look back at the cross and we look at how it affects our life in the present, but just as much as those, we look forward to the future, the consummation of all things that you are bringing to pass. And we cannot wait. We are so thankful, Lord, for you this morning and every morning. And we ask now that as we go to your word that you would speak to us, that you would now prepare our hearts to hear from you, that we may walk out of this room a little bit more like Christ than when we came in. For your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've often found that long road trips are are more enjoyable in theory than in reality. I I don't know if you can relate to that, but... um, I find that they're more fun in the planning stages than at the halfway point of the trip. And that at some point along the way, in my experience, there's always moments in each journey when the enthusiasm and the excitement and the novelty are replaced by monotony and boredom and discomfort for being trapped in a car for so long. And as I thought this week about the Gospel of Mark, if you're visiting with us today, we have been marching through this Gospel together as a church family for eight months now. And as I thought about what Mark describes in there, I kind of realized that the Christian life is in some ways like that long road trip. Now, at the beginning, it's exciting. We come to the Lord and it's thrilling and we can't think of anything better. And we know that the final destination is indescribably amazing. And yet between those two times, there are moments of monotony. There are times when it's less than enjoyable. And there are times when it's actually flat-out difficult and hard. And this is the realistic picture of the journey of discipleship that Mark presents us with in his gospel account, as we've seen over the last number of months. He doesn't sugarcoat this trip at all, does he? He doesn't sugarcoat it. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark describes true Christianity as filled with both joy and conflict. It's all at the same time life-giving, and life-demanding, all at once. Jesus himself, we've seen, summarized the journey by saying in chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, they must take up their cross and follow me. And if you're like me, you know, there have been times through this study in Mark's Gospel where I found it a bit conflicting. I felt it hard to reconcile two parts of myself. There's part of me that, that desperately wants to follow Jesus the way that Mark has described. And yet there's another part of me that knows that I can't, that I won't. 
And I have decades of evidence to back that up. You know, I just know that I will not do it the way that he's prescribing. There's part of me that wants to be faithful so badly, and there's another part of me that, that just knows my propensity for being fickle, for being selfish and distracted. And so, and so I come to a place at the end of Mark's gospel where I'm, I'm conflicted. It, it leaves me with an important question. As we've gone through this gospel account, it leaves me with the question, what happens if I fail to follow Jesus perfectly and consistently? What happens then? Am I, am I disqualified? To ask it another way, is there hope for imperfect disciples? And I'm not going to project on you, but I think I may have some company in that regard here this morning. Is there hope for us, those of us who will try to take up our cross and follow him, will try to deny ourselves and follow him, but, but will not do it perfectly, and we know that. Is there hope for us? And you know the answer to that, that that is an absolute resounding yes. But we're going to find that answer in this final section of Mark's gospel as we come to it this morning. Starting in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, and continuing on to chapter 16, verse 8, where we will end our study. I'll invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, starting at Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 40. And appropriately, as we come to the end of Mark's gospel, we come to the account of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Some women were watching from a distance, that is, watching his crucifixion and death. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were there also. It was preparation day, that is, the day before Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. Please be seated. To add some structure to our study of this text this morning, I want us to look at four people or groups of people in this passage. Okay, and there'll kind of be signposts along the way that can guide our journey through this text. We see first the women, and then we're going to see the councilman, Joseph, and then we're going to see the Lord himself, and then the readers, 
us, you and I. So four people are groups of people as we move through this text. Looking, looking first at the women in this passage, we see immediately that there's a group. There's a group that faithfully remain with Jesus in spite of the surrounding chaos. They're there. They go nowhere. All through his life, through the trials, through the torture, through the crucifixion, into his death, death they are there. And in fact, in verse 41, we learn that while the three women are named, Salome and the two Marys, there's actually a, a larger group to which they belong. For, the, for, the, for months, maybe even years, these women had followed and cared for Jesus during his ministry. These women were, were faithfully there all along the way. Backing up to verse 40. Verse 40 tells us that, that they were there when Jesus died. They saw from a distance. They were there and watched him gasp for his last breath. Verse 47 says that they were there when he was buried. They saw where he was laid. Chapter 16, verse 4 reports that they were there to see the stone rolled away. They showed up and saw it was moved. And so we can't miss Mark's point here as he describes the women's involvement in this last scene of his gospel. At every step of the way, these women were there. They were there. They faithfully remained with Jesus even after he was dead, following his corpse to the tomb. They were faithful, faithful, faithful. Where are the men? More specifically, where are the twelve? Where are they? Mark subtly, I think, takes a jab at their absence. He wants us to notice this in in verse 3 of chapter 16. They're approaching the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, and the women ask each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? There's only three women here. There's a huge stone. How can we get it? Wouldn't it be nice to have a few fishermen around? It could help us move that stone. Wouldn't it be nice? See, while the male disciples had run away, we knew that from before. In the garden, they fled. They ran for their lives. While they had run away, the female disciples had decided to stay. The women faithfully, faithfully remained with Jesus all the way through this narrative. But the women aren't the only ones who impress in this passage. Mark also describes the actions of the councilmen. While the women were faithfully remaining with Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, he boldly requests Jesus. He says, I want that body. Give me the body so I can take care of it. In verse 43, we're told a few things about Joseph. Joseph was not only a prominent member of the council, you know, so he's part of the the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish elite, the ones who guided all Judaism. He's part of that, a prominent member, in fact. Not only was he that, but he was also waiting for the kingdom of God meaning that he was a faithful Jewish man. And we learn from other texts in John chapter 19 that he actually was a believer in Jesus. So not only is he a member of the Sanhedrin, but he believes Jesus is the Messiah that's going to usher in this kingdom. Imagine the internal conflict of Joseph here. So he's, he's a member of the council. Remember, the Sanhedrin was responsible for the death of Christ. So he's sitting on this council. We don't know why it happened. We don't know if he was unwilling to speak up or unable to sway the verdict. But Christ dies. Despite his best wishes, he doesn't want that to happen. Christ is killed. But now that he's dead, Joseph feels, okay, now I can be involved. I'm going to be involved in the burial. And he requests from Pilate Jesus' body to give him an honorable burial. And Mark says that this was bold. He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. We have to say, why was that so bold? What was so brave and courageous about this request? Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that in Joseph going before Pilate 
to say, I want that body, to give him a proper burial. He was outing himself as being against the rest of the Sanhedrin. He was, for once, saying, I'm not with this. I wasn't in agreement with what had happened. In addition to that, he's going to the guy, you'll remember, that the Sanhedrin had pestered to do their dirty work. Right? So they were in the trial, and, and Pilate was saying, no, 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 this guy is not guilty. I see nothing wrong with him, nothing for execution, certainly. And they're saying, no, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they twist his arm until finally, Pilate says, fine. And he washes his hands of it. And now here's a member of the Sanhedrin coming back to him hours after and saying, oh, by the way, can I get that body back? And so he was risking a whole lot, and it was a bold move on Joseph's part. It was a bold request by a, a vulnerable follower of Jesus. And again, we ask, okay, where are the twelve? Where are the twelve? Well, this councilman risks his reputation and possibly his life. Peter, James, and John are, are nowhere to be found. In fact, the courage of Joseph only emphasizes their cowardice. He's standing up there saying, I want the body. And the disciples are off hiding. See, we need to understand, and Mark has done this several times through his gospel, he is showcasing good examples of discipleship. And he's contrasting them with bad examples. He's saying, here's a good example, here's a bad example, and then he invites the readers to choose. He invites the readers to ask themselves a question, where would I be here? Would I be faithful with the women? Would I be bold with the councilmen? Or would I be with the disciples? And only I can answer that for myself, and only you can answer that for you. But Mark is inviting us into this story to to ask us this question. And all of us, we look back over our Christian lives, and we can probably see examples of of where we were faithful and where we were faithless. We can probably see examples in our lives where, where we were bold for the Lord, and other places where we were less bold, where we were fearful. And if we're honest, as we look back over our lives, we'll probably admit that, you know, I wish I had been more faithful than I was. I wish I had been more bold than I was. I wish I had been more of those things like Scripture invites me to be. And Mark is inviting us into this existential crisis. Saying, good example. Women. The councilmen. Bad example. We're the twelve. And he's saying, where are we? We just have to say, I'm probably somewhere between those two, Right? I'm certainly not a perfect disciple. I, I've strayed. I've, I've stumbled all of these things. But Mark wants us to feel that tension. He wants the readers to feel this crisis where I should have done better. I should have followed more faithfully. And why does he want us to feel that? Why does he want us to be so uncomfortable? Because of what comes next. Well, we've seen the women and the councilmen as examples of discipleship. Now we come to the Lord. We come to the Lord Jesus and we find him graciously restoring stumbling disciples like us. And that's a great truth, because honestly, is there any other kind of disciple? We're all stumbling disciples, aren't we? And when we come to that realization, when we're faced with it, like we are here in Mark, when we're faced with the fact that we're imperfect disciples, the grace of God that he shows us it becomes so beautiful and so, so welcomed and necessary. And Mark has prepared us for that. Look at chapter 16, verses 4 and 5 for a moment. But when they, the women, they looked up, and saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now we know from Matthew and John that this is an angel. And we know that Mark knows what angels look like. And we know that Mark doesn't mind calling angels angels. 
because he's done it five different times in this text, in this gospel account already. In chapter 1, in chapter 8, in chapter 12, in chapter 13, twice. Angel, 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 angel. Then he comes to the tomb where we know it's an angel, and he doesn't say angel. Why? He calls him a young man. What's going on here? Why would he do this? Why would he uh, shift vocabulary to call this clear angel a young man unless he's doing something with the words that he's choosing? He's doing something to the readers to lead us back to another place in his gospel account where a random young man shows up in his gospel. Do you remember where that is? Turn back to chapter 14 for a moment. We're back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. Verse 50, Then everyone deserted him and fled. Verse 51, A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And if you were with us when we went through the text that included that, you probably thought to yourself, what's with the streaker? You know, we, 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 never, even, we never even talked about him. He couldn't be there by accident, right? He, he had to, there has to be a purpose to Mark including that little cameo. And I would suggest that we come to that now, actually. We start to understand what Mark is doing. So, so really, in chapter 14, we have this, this young man in the garden abandoning Jesus. Right? He's fleeing from Jesus when he's arrested. And then we fast forward to chapter 16, and we have another young man who's announcing the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to notice as we read both that Mark pays an unusual amount of attention to what they're wearing. Did you notice that? So we have in, in the garden, he's wearing this linen garment. And then he flees naked, and he's leaving this garment behind. And then back in the tomb, he's wearing this, this white robe. These white robes. So these, these cameos of these young men, and Mark is talking about what they're wearing. We need to pay attention to this. So track with me here. I promise it'll pay off. Okay? Track with me. He's, he's talking about what they're wearing, because what Mark is going to do, literarily, he's going to do a clothing swap. And this clothing swap, it symbolizes an incredible truth. An incredible truth that is at the core of Christianity, and certainly at the core of Easter. So this streaker in chapter 14, I think we can say that he's a failed disciple. Right? He's a failed disciple. It says in the text that he was following Jesus. Same word that Jesus says to the disciples, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So he's following. He's a following disciple of Jesus. But then, in a time of trouble, when Jesus is arrested, he was neither faithful nor fearless. He was not faithful like the women, and he was not fearless and bold like the councilmen. No, he runs away. He turns tail. And the shame of that failure is depicted in the young man's nakedness. Throughout scripture, nakedness is, goes hand in hand with shame. And here we have a disciple who, by the way, aren't we as disciples called to give everything up to follow Jesus? And now we have a disciple literally giving everything up to run away from Jesus. He's fleeing Jesus. He's a failed disciple. And what's interesting is that when we look at the word used here by Mark for this linen garment, That only shows up one other time. That word only shows up one other time in Mark's gospel. And it's actually in the text that we're dealing with this morning, in chapter 15, verse 46. So Joseph bought some linen cloth. There it is. Took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. It's though the shame of the disciples' failure is passed to Christ to wear in death. He takes it upon himself and is wrapped in it in the grave. If you're not convinced, keep following me. What about the young man in the tomb? So we've seen the one young man, right? The one man that, that 
strips down and bolts in fear. But now we have this second young man in the tomb in verse 5 of chapter 16. And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. So we say, okay, where did he get his fancy duds? And we see the first young man fleeing, losing his garments. Where did this guy get this glowing white? Well, again, one other time in Mark's gospel, this word is used, and it's back in chapter 9. Chapter 9, and I'll read the first three verses so we get the context. And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. He's talking to his disciples, saying, some of you here, literally, will see the glory of God before you die. And what he's talking about happens in the next verse. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Same word. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So back in Mark 15 and 16... Not only did the shameful garments of the unfaithful young man end up wrapped around Jesus' corpse, but the glorious robes Jesus wore at the transfiguration end up on the young man in the tomb. We find clothing being used to describe our standing with God throughout Scripture. This isn't novel to Mark. We see this throughout. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, the prophet says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy, like a filthy garment like a filthy garment. And yet Job says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. And then back in Isaiah, the prophet proclaims again, my soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And Mark is just extending this metaphor. The streaker's garment of shame literally becomes, literally becomes Jesus' garment of shame in the grave. And Jesus' glorious garment becomes the tomb-sitter's garment of glory. And so you can start to see what Mark is doing here. He's painting us a picture. And as, as disciples of Jesus Christ, there's this great exchange, this clothing swap, right? As, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians here, this is our story. As we place, when we placed our faith in the person work of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died and rose again, like we celebrate today, when he did that, we experienced this clothing swap. We experience this trade. Whether you understand it or not, this is what the Bible says has happened to us. The shameful robes that were that we wore for so long, the shameful robes of our sin, of our disobedience, of our rebellion, all of it, he took it all. He took it all to the grave. And that's what we remember on Good Friday. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I mean, that's a lot he's taken upon himself. Our infirm- my infirmities, my sorrows, my transgressions, my iniquities. He was wrapped in my garbage on the cross. All our failings, shortcomings, rebellions, he took them all, past, present, and future. All the nonsense I did before coming to Christ... All my disloyalty and inconsistency since following Christ. It all went with him to that tomb. He who knew no sin took all the sin, wrapped himself in it, and paid for it all. What do I get in exchange? 
Am I standing there naked in the garden, full of shame? Absolutely not. I get the holy, righteous, pure robes that Christ wore at the transfiguration. I get his glorious, pure clothing attributed to my account. That's exactly what happens at conversion. And no matter how much I mess up in my following of Jesus now, no matter how much I mess up, no matter how selfish I can still become, and no matter how much I stumble and fall on this journey of discipleship, because of him I will never have to stand shamefully naked ever again. Ever. In my iniquities. For I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and when God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see the sinner that I am. He sees the beauty of his Son. And so as we are disciples, trying to follow Jesus, trying the best we can, but we stumble, we fall, we trip up. We know those robes aren't going anywhere. He took all of that with him to the grave, and he's given me his glorious ones. So it should give us confidence. It should give us freedom to follow him. Sure, we confess when we mess up. Say, Lord, I should have done better. I know that. Help me. But we never have to be so guilty that we are halted in our, in our steps again. That we are frozen in our discipleship. We don't have to be. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God the Father made him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why would he do that? Why go to all that trouble? Why would he bother? Well, Paul goes on to say, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are not perfectly faithful, any of us. We are not perfectly bold. We do not live up to the, the, the example that the women set or the example that the councilmen set. We don't do that. But the Lord Jesus restores stumbling disciples like us. His is a ministry of grace, and for all of us. And so we've seen in this passage the women and the councilmen and the Lord. And I want to close with a brief look at this last group, this hidden group, kind of an assumed group in this gospel. That's the readers. That's you and I. What we see here is an invitation that each one of us is given and we all have to respond to. That's what we find in this text, an invitation to each and every one of us as readers. Verses 6 and 7 of our text. This white-robed, clad young man says to the women, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The women were faithful. The disciples and Peter were not. The councilman was bold. The disciples and Peter were not. And yet, in spite of their failure, Jesus graciously reaches out and says, I'll see them again soon. Tell them. Tell the disciples and Peter, those who are not here, who have left, who are hiding, tell them and Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter, I will see them again soon. And and where does he tell them that he's going to meet them? Did you notice that? In Galilee. Tell them to go to Galilee. I'll meet them there. Galilee is significant in Mark, we've seen. Because all of Mark's gospel is a journey of discipleship that started in Galilee, where they were called to be disciples, and goes along and finishes in Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, I'll meet them in Galilee. I'll meet them back on the trail. I'll meet them back at where we started. Get back on the race. Get back on the trip of journey, of the journey of discipleship. He's inviting them back in in spite of all of their failures. I will meet them back on the road. 
Now listen to me. Better yet, listen to the Lord. Don't listen to me. Listen to the Lord. No matter what has happened in your life, no matter what you have done in your relationship with God, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many times you've tripped up, no matter how much you've disappointed Him or you think you've disappointed Him, the invitation stands. Meet me in Galilee, He says. This is not over. You've still got my robes on. Come, follow me. This is not over. Do not be buried in shame. The enemy of our souls would love to convince us that once we are sinful, once we have strayed, that's it. Christ wants nothing else to do with us. And that is a lie. Jesus here is standing against that lie and saying, I'm going to meet you again. Get back on the road. Repent and let's keep going, he says. What a glorious truth. Forgiveness and reinstatement are always available to disciples of Jesus Christ. And not only to disciples of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never started the journey of following Jesus, the invitation stands for you as well. You need to understand that he loves you. He loves you. He, he died for you. And he wants you to follow him. He wants you to strive to follow after him. And all that's left for you to do is respond by believing. And the beautiful journey begins. And you get to today, Mark 2019, Easter 2019 on the calendar as being the, the, the day that not only did you come and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord, but you celebrated, in a sense, your own resurrection, your own passing from death to life. Today could be that day. And you will join the majority of us in here on this phenomenal, unbelievable trip of discipleship as we try to stumble after a gracious Lord and Savior together. This, this trip of discipleship is, is life-giving. And it is a journey that is characterized by forgiveness and power and joy and unity and grace and salvation. The trip of a lifetime. We're invited to join. And again, no matter how much we blow it, no matter how imperfect we are, because we all are, we get to throw away that pretense. Just say, he paid for all of my sins. I'm clothed not in the filthy rags that I brought into this world, but I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And all of that, all of that, was made possible because of a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Amazing, amazing love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is amazing love. When I think about all my dysfunction, all my disloyalty, all my fickleness, all my selfishness, all my pride, when I think about it all wrapped around the corpse of he who loved me so much that he would give his life for me, it makes me want to cry. I didn't earn any of this. I couldn't earn it. I came to you with nothing. I was a rebel against you, and yet you sent your son to die for me and die for my brothers and sisters in this room. You died for the world. You gave us this beautiful gift of salvation, a, a way to be reconciled to a holy God in spite of our own holiness. You say, here, open it. Open it simply by faith. Take it. Believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and that he did what Scripture claims he did, died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. You've opened the gift. It's attributed to your account. You can, you can do a clothing swap right now. Father, what a gift. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, for the members of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel for whom that is true. We rejoice in that today. We rejoice in one another's salvation today.
Father, we know we're not perfect disciples. And the last week has shown that in spades. We know that. But we revel in the fact that you are a gracious God, a God full of forgiveness, full of love, and you invite us. You say, meet me back in Galilee. Let's get back on the road together. Continue to follow me in this, this journey of discipleship toward life abundant. Father, help us by the power of your Spirit to take up that task, to, to throw off our pride of false humility and to throw our cares upon you. Help us, we pray, for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.